Our Father, we, we are here today because of your grace and goodness to us, expressed explicitly through the, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the work that he has done for us on Calvary, and because of that finished work, we stand here together as whole people, priests, everyone who have the privilege and access to fellowship with the Father. Lord, it is our desire that this worship service would be a blessing to you. You alone deserve our very best. And we give it to you, Father, with all of our being. And from the bottom of my, our hearts, we worship you today in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray this morning for those in our congregation who have needs. Uh, there have been many this week. I think of... Um, of Michael Byrd, Father, and the loss of his father. And uh, we pray your blessings upon his family, especially his mom. And Lord, we pray that you'll bring healing and restore that family soon, Father. Lord, there are those among us who still suffer physically. Uh, with uh, There are those in the hospital. We lift those up to you. And we pray, Father, that your healing hand would move among us this week. Father, now we come to this portion of the service where we give just a portion back to you. And Lord, we are reminded every week that all that we have belongs to you. And Lord, we, um, we give this to you with glad hearts and celebration and thanksgiving. Then, Father, finally, we would lift up the preaching of the word. Father, I pray that you would move among us today. Holy Spirit of God, do a work within our hearts. Lord, guard the speaker as he speaks. May truth penetrate our hearts today. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I do want to offer this disclaimer this morning. Guys, in some ways, this sermon's a little bit more difficult, a little bit more of a challenge than a typical sermon. We, we like to preach expositorily here at Grace of Anne. Take a text and just expose that text. And this is, uh, all summer we've been preaching more topically, and so the challenge is how to, um, how to preach a sermon on a topic like small group ministries and yet remain true to Scripture. And then the, ultimately what I've come down with is a reference to, uh, to some comments to three or four different texts out of the New Testament. We're going to be looking just briefly this morning at a passage in Matthew chapter 9. So if you'll turn there first, Matthew 9... We'll mention and read some verses in John 17 and then close with some remarks in Luke chapter 10. But to begin with this morning, Matthew chapter 9. Some weeks ago, when Jimmy and I were talking about the summer series and I got my assignment to preach on the issue of small groups, and I started putting thoughts together and notes together thinking about this sermon I kept moving back to the issue of core value that we have listed there on your brochure, core value number five, the blessings and demands of covenant community. And I was constantly reminding myself as I prepared for this sermon that I'm not preaching on the blessings and demands of covenant community. My topic today is small groups. So at first I, I resisted that temptation, then it dawned on me that the reason I'm having that kind of a problem is because so many of our core values really overlap. In fact, though community takes place in all kinds of contexts here at Grace of Hand, community is taking place right now in classrooms, yet the perfect setting 
For the blessings and demands of covenant community really take place best in a small group setting. Several years ago, I went to a national church leadership conference, and one of the main topics of that conference was the issue of cell groups, small groups, the small group movement that's been sweeping across this country in churches all throughout the United States. And one of the phrases that I kept hearing over and over again in that conference was, life change happens in small groups. Count on it. Life change happens in small groups. I came back to town. I put together our first small groups brochure that we printed here at Grace. You know the one with the six smiling faces on the front? I borrowed that phrase, and I placed it on the front of that brochure, life-changing small groups. And guys, the reason I borrowed that phrase is because we believe that small groups provide the perfect setting for two dynamics of the Christian life. Truth and ministry. Truth and ministry. So what I want to do this morning and the time that we have left, I want to talk about those two dynamics of the Christian life, truth and ministry. And my hopes are when you leave here today that you will be convinced, as we are, that the perfect setting for these two dynamics of the Christian life is a small group setting. Matthew chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 35. <clears throat> Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Gang, as I study the New Testament, and particularly the life of Jesus Christ, there are two things, two characteristics about the life of Christ that really jump out at me on the pages of Scripture. One, one is our Lord's compassion. He was a compassionate man. And though Christ's primary concern was the spiritual enslavement of the people, that did not lessen his compassion for those who were victims of social oppression and physical disease. In fact, our Lord himself said that this is, his power to heal was proof of his authority to forgive sins. In our text this morning, Matthew records that after Jesus having ministered to the sick and healing the sick in and around his own town, Matthew records that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because he saw them as a people who were harassed and helpless. He described them as sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 14, once again, Jesus sees the crowd pressing and he has compassion on them, Matthew says, and he heals their sick. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus passes by two blind men on the side of the road. He turns to them. He says, what do you want from me? And they said, Lord, we would have our sight. We would like to see. And Matthew records that Jesus had compassion on them. And he touched their eyes and healed them. Now, guys, I, I find it interesting that the word translated compassion, in all three examples I've given you this morning, the word translated compassion is the word for bowels, B-O-W-E-L-S. Bowels. You see, if we were to express today in our language, in our vernacular, if we were to try to express with words a very emotional feeling, 
the heights of emotion. We might say his or her heart was moved with compassion or she, her heart was broken. We would use the word heart. In Jesus' day, they, would, they used the word bowels. It's possible, you see, that Jesus, so often expressing his own humanity, was so overcome with emotion that he became nauseated when he saw the plight of the people. He was a man of compassion. He truly loved people. Now, as you combine our Lord's compassion and his commitment to his mission, and these are consistent with Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would indeed be a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. Our Lord was a compassionate man. Not only was he a compassionate man, but it often, it's often expressed by his actions that our Lord was committed to his mission. He understood why he was here upon this earth. In an interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, we discover there the very nature of our Lord's mission. We discover that Christ has come and ultimately by his obedience to the Father, he brings glory to the Father. And this is accomplished, he expresses to Zacchaeus, by his desire to seek and to save the lost. In John chapter 4, in that great classic text where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, Jesus tells the woman that a time is coming and a time has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then Jesus says these words, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. And so the nature of his mission was to seek and to save the lost, to bring the lost sheep back into the household of faith. That's the nature of his mission. We also discover in the Gospels the method of his mission. See, there came a time when Jesus pulled away from the multitudes and he invested his life into 12 men. And that's one of the reasons I began with this text in Matthew 9 this morning, Matthew 9, 36-38, because in these four verses marks a significant transition in Jesus' ministry. Until this point, Jesus has been ministering to the multitudes and his disciples have simply been onlookers. They've been observing and learning as Jesus ministers to the crowds. Now Jesus is about to turn away, at least temporarily, from the public ministry to the multitudes. He's about to concentrate exclusively on discipling an inner circle of 12 men. Now guys, this is not complex. I think Jesus understood something. I think he understood his own span of influence. I think Jesus understood the potential of seeing 12 men become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now think about that in the context of our own lives. Parents, think about that. Think about the power that we possess as mothers and fathers in discipling and nurturing our children. Think about our own households, fathers, becoming fully devoted followers of Christ and those kids growing up to be God-fearers. And in turn, they're indoctrinating and teaching and, 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 and and winning their own children, and generation after generation are impacted by our own passion and our own understanding of our mission. Think of it in the context of small group settings within this, this congregation right here, of men and women who are willing to pull aside for a period of time and make a spiritual investment in each other's lives. 
and watching as we grow together, becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That was his method. Think of now of the message of his mission. Turn with me in John chapter 17. Guys, John 17, the, the, um, the message of Christ's mission was nothing other than truth. Our Lord was passionate about truth. Now, we're about to read a text where Jesus is coming to the close of his earthly ministry. In fact, just hours after this, he's going to be crucified. In John 17, we find what has become known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus is about to pray for his disciples. Listen to what he prays in verse 15. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them, my disciples, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus comes to the end of his ministry, to the end of his opportunity to disciple these 12 men, and he prays this prayer, Father, sanctify these men, sanctify my disciples by truth. Your word is truth. Again, here's what you'll discover in the Gospels. Jesus taught his, his disciples about truth. He taught them to understand truth. That is, this is not another message. This is the message. In fact, he says, I am truth myself, the embodiment of ultimate reality, true truth. Now, guys, the implications for us as a church is this. Do you know that you can go outside of these doors into your neighborhoods, into your communities, into this city, and you can have many of your needs met as human beings apart from the church? I mean, we could lock up our doors and you could have certain needs met without the church. Uh, your need to give to other people. You could go out and raise money for St. Jude Hospital, a worthy cause. I hope many of you do. You could join the Peace Corps and meet that need of investing in other people's lives. You could, um, could join the Neighborhood Association. You could join the, the VFW. On and on we could go and have social interaction, a very basic human need. You can find community outside of these doors. But my question for you this morning, my point is this. What makes this place we call Grace of Anne, the body of Christ, what makes it unique among all those other venues? What makes us unique? The thing that makes us unique is that we are making truth claims. We have within our possession truth, the message of the gospel. And this was the, the clarion call that the apostles gave the early church. We see it in the book of Acts. The apostles stood before the early church and they reminded them this, of this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. We have a truth claim. And that's the message of our mission. Now here's the question I propose this morning. If... If the disciples are made, were made by communicating truth, then doesn't it stand to reason that truth, truth ought to saturate our hearts and minds as God's people today? You know, you can turn to the epistles. 
And if we had time, I could read several examples of where the apostles continued this message to the early church. In fact, in one epistle, the epistle to the Colossians, Paul writes a letter and he sends these words to these young believers. Now get the setting of this. Paul's not standing before six or seven hundred people like I am on Sunday or Jimmy does on Sunday and preach, preaching truth. The setting is more like in small settings and house churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, Paul writes a letter. It's, it's, uh, it's transported to the people by carrier. They receive it. The word goes out in the communities. There's a message from Paul. He sent us a letter. Don't miss tonight. And so these groups of people meet in various homes throughout the cities and the countryside. And they gather in these small group settings. And they hear words like this from the Apostle Paul. Paul would, would say this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Peter would do the same thing. He would send his epistles out. They would get into the hands of the people. They would meet in their homes. And here would be Peter's words. One example. Peter says, brothers and sisters, I admonish you. Crave. Crave the word like a newborn craves milk that you may grow up in your salvation. Now, guys, I believe the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter understood something. I believe they understood that it's in the mind that the new nature and the old nature are intermixed. I believe they understood that it's in the mind that we choose or we make choices to live in holiness or to act in unholiness. And so the admonition to us is to let our minds be saturated with truth. And then Jesus taught the disciples the nature of the mission, the nature of his mission. And it's this. By its very nature, truth is mission-oriented. It's mission-oriented. When I um, was a firefighter, some of you, many of you know that, for almost 12 years, and uh, I can remember... The, the, the hours that we spent taking care of our equipment. I mean, we spent untold hours shining and cleaning and servicing. And part of the reason is we understood that if we were to accomplish our task, we needed to be very familiar with our equipment. It had to just become second nature, how to operate it, how to use it. And uh, we kept it very clean. In fact, you could go to any fire station today, and one of the things you'll be impressed with is how clean and shiny everything is. It's good PR, isn't it? You know what? I never remember a night, and I can remember occasions where we would go out uh, during the night in inclement weather, stormy weather. We'd come back after two or three hours of working, and everything is in disarray. Everything's dirty, and we would stay up in the wee hours of the night cleaning and servicing, getting everything ready to go again, only to get back in bed and an hour later have to go right back out in the storm. And not one time in 10 or 12 years do I ever remember any of us refusing to go out again to get the fire truck dirty again. And here's my point, guys. It's an absolute absurdity to live our lives as Christians as if truth was given simply for our own well-being. Because the very nature of truth is it's mission-oriented. We are called to go into the world. We are called to shepherd or to, to, to be priests to one another. 
the priestly prayer that we read this morning in John 17, I remind you of his words. Jesus prayed this prayer. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The nature of his mission is, the nature of truth is mission-oriented. We are called to be ministers of the gospel to each other and, and to the world. Now finally this morning, I want to move to the second dynamic of the Christian life, and that's ministry. First one is truth, second one is ministry. Look with me in Luke chapter 10. I want to close with, with just some comments on this particular text. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, 25. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't have time to fully develop this story, but uh, I do want to make some comments just to make this point this morning about our call to ministry. Now the text begins, this portion of the text begins, that on one occasion an expert of the law stood up in, in the presence of Jesus and uh, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him, well, you're the expert. What do you think it means? We see that the expert, uh, expert answers this way. Well, the, I know that the, the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, that's an orthodox answer. You've answered correctly. Now go out and do this and you will live. Then the expert asks another question. And guys, it, it wouldn't, it's not necessarily true that this man is testing Jesus because he's hostile toward Jesus. In fact, this man's an expert in the law. He's one of the guys that, that um, officiates some of the debates over the finer points of the law. It's possible that these very questions have been proposed to him before. And this is a great teacher. Why not get it firsthand? And so he's testing Jesus, looking for an answer. And Jesus now, in response to the second question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable. Now, I think it's, it would be a mistake to, to, uh, to allegorize this parable because parables are really real-life situations that Jesus tells to illustrate a kingdom principle. And so Jesus, in, in the context of these two questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life, and who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the parable. Here's what he says. Now, you know the parable probably by heart. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the, he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be uh, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went into him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his dawn donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he looks after him, he looks in, uh, after him, and he tells the innkeeper, look, take care of this man, and he leaves him enough money to take care of him, and he says, and when I come back, if there's any extra expense, I'll give that to you as well. Verse 36, the question is asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor uh, to the man who fell among robbers? The expert in the law, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, there's lots of things we could develop out of this parable. Here's the one point I want you to see. Did you, did you pick up on this? 
This man is going from Jerusalem. He's been up to the temple probably. He's returning. He falls among thieves. And a, a, a teacher, a, a priest and a Levite come by his way and they ignore him. They see him, they see his need, and they ignore him. Now here's, here's the thing I want you to see. This priest and the Levite have been to Jerusalem fulfilling their religious duty. We know they've been there and they're on their way back. They've already been there doing it. They're doing what they've been taught to do. They've been, they're doing what they're paid to do. Uh, it is their responsibility. It was their religious duty to go there. And we know that they're returning because the text says they're going down from Jerusalem. If you were to walk today from Jerusalem to Jericho, you would walk about 17 miles descending from Jerusalem down toward the Jordan River, north of the, the Dead Sea. And the, the road was a characteristic of, of rough terrain, and it was common for thieves to lurk by the roadside and fall upon the innocent, prey upon the innocent. These men have been there to fulfill their religious duty. They pass by the guy. They step, and they even go around him. Now, the point is this. These men are, have been to Jerusalem fulfilling their religious duty, and Jesus points out, even though they've been fulfilling the law, the law has been observed, they have failed because they did not show mercy to the man fallen among thieves. Now, here's my application for us today. Guys, there are numerous opportunities in our lives to show mercy to people. There are numerous opportunities. We face them almost weekly where God sends people across our paths with the intention for us to minister to those people, and we ignore those opportunities. It, it can happen in subtle ways. Um, I've got a phone in my office fairly complicated phone. In fact, I don't even, I've, I've had that phone for several years now, and I still don't know how to operate all the buttons on that telephone. I know how to answer calls. I know how to put people on hold, and I can, I've learned recently how to actually transfer calls that get into my office that don't need to be there. I can transfer them out. But there are other things that, there is one button on that phone that I know how to operate, and you may have one of these buttons on your phone at the office. It's a button that has DND on it. You know what it stands for? DND? &D? Do not disturb. Now, guys, I, I tell you, I struggle with that button. I just, I find it very ironic that a minister of the gospel, one who has a calling to shepherd sheep, has a button on his phone that says, Don't disturb me. And I, I tell you, I just have trouble pushing that button. Occasionally, I have to push it. I pushed it Friday morning so I could study for this sermon. But I just, I. Guys, I'm not saying that we don't need private time, that we don't need time to pull along and times of refreshment. I'm not saying that. I'm just warning us this morning. I, here's a caution, that there are opportunities to be ministers to men and women fallen among thieves, and so often we ignore it. We have been called to ministry. I think it's, um, I think it's time that we really rethink the church. In fact... I think it's a bad assumption for us to interpret what we're doing here this morning, right here in this hour, as church. This is just part of it. In fact, it'd be better to, to define what we have done today as, as a prelude in a musical score. It's just the introduction to what comes ahead. This is the prelude to our weekly ministry that we're about to go out into to minister to those in need. Those in need in this congregation... 
and those in need in our community, the lost. We're called to be ministers of the gospel. Truth and ministry. And we think those two dynamics of the Christian life will take place best in the context of small groups. Just um, recently, a week before last, I finished reading um, Larry Crabb's newest book, The Safest Place on Earth. He makes two comments in that book that really are the thesis of his whole work. Larry Crabb says that we need two things in the church today. First, he says, we need a depth view of our moral wretchedness. That is, we need a distinctively Christian worldview of what lies beneath sexual addictions, eating disorders, marital and family relationships, problems. We need a distinctively Christian worldview of what lies beneath those problems. Then secondly, Larry says, we need a recovery of the rich understanding of the universal priesthood of all believers. Now guys, we believe that and we teach it here at Grace. But I believe he's right. We need a recovery of the rich understanding of what that means and what that implies. That is, that we are all priests. Every one of us have access to the Father. And secondly, every one of us, because we're a priest, we have been uniquely gifted by God to be ministers and to minister to other people in the body. What I'm saying to you is, you're sitting beside people that need you. When I first became a firefighter, my first, I remember my first year in the fire service, I was probably worked at two, three different engine houses. And I remember my first assignment and my first officer that I worked for. And I remember being transferred later on to another station, a new officer, and it soon dawned on me, I, very early on, I realized that there were two kinds of officers in the fire department. There was the officer that had 20 rich, full years of experience. Then there was the officer that had one year's experience multiplied by 20. I'll tell you the guy I chose to hang around with. I wanted to hang around with the officer that had 20 rich, full years of experience because I, I could learn something from him. I was the new guy on the block, didn't know anything. I needed to be taught. Guys, uh, here's my application for us for that story. I've grown up with this church right here. I've been a part of this church almost from day one. And I think it's safe to say there are three kinds of people in this congregation. There are some of you who have 20 rich years of experience. I mean, you have so much to give to the body. You have grown. You have grown through precept studies, navigator studies, small group settings. You've gone. You've heard the best. You've learned from it. You have so much to give. There, then there are some of you who have been here for 20 years. A part of the, you have a rich heritage. You've been a part of the church for 20 years, but you've really never matured in your Christian walk. You've ceased to crave, as Peter said, the, the milk of the word. You're not growing. Then there's a third type. There are, there are those who are the new kids on the block. We have people in this congregation who are brand new to the Christian faith, hungry, hungry for truth. I talk to him every week. I talk to a lady this Friday. This Friday. New. Hungry for truth. Now, guys, this is our goal. 
That's just what we're striving for at Grace Event. We're trying to take those three groups of people and mix them together so that all three will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see discipleship take place here at Grace Event. And we believe the best setting for that is in a small group setting. That is, we become truly disciples of Jesus Christ. We discover who Christ is. We seek to become like Him. And then thirdly, because the nature of truth is mission-oriented, we seek to reach others for Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. Now, as I close it, I just, I just, for some reason, I want, I decided I wanted to read to you the last two of our core values. They're on that sheet. They're in the back of the chair in front of you. Number five and number six: the blessings and demands of covenant community. The great privilege of family-like relationships, demanding a stewarding of our spiritual gifts, our time and our resources. That's the blessings and demands of covenant community. Secondly, or number six, small groups. Our primary vehicle of discipleship is small groups where accountability is fostered, relationships formed, and personal holiness is encouraged. I encourage you guys, if you're not a part of a small group, become a part of one. Some of you need to be leading small groups. We encourage you to join us in this exciting adventure of growing in the Christian life. Well, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can study about the life of Christ and by his very life and example, see a man who is passionate, passionate about truth, a man committed to ministry, and through his life and example, we see, we discover that the very nature of truth is that it's mission-oriented. And Father, we thank you that we are all priests. We understand that we have direct access to you. And yet, Father, I think we fail to realize, we fail to appreciate the fact that we have all been gifted and we all need each other. We have something unique to give to the body. Lord, our prayer is that the people of Grace of Anne would, would come together in, a, in small group settings and learn to crave the milk of the Word and grow together. And as a result of maturing Christians, loving God more, they in turn reach a lost world. We pray that you will work among us. And Lord, conform us into the image of your Son. Lord, it is our desire to be a church that's in love with her Lord. And you will be pleased by our service and our commitment to you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.